This is exactly right. Acceptance is doing the work every day. It's recognizing your own, you know, humanness within this journey and being self-compassionate with yourself and setting an intention every day to show up as best as you can for your child. It doesn't mean we're not going to have bad days. It means that we recognize, huh, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to try to do better tomorrow. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am your host, Dr. Dan, and let me tell you about Parent Footprint. Our mission is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. We believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. I am so excited to have back my friend and colleague, Debbie Reber, to talk to us today about beyond diagnosis, moving from a fix-it mindset to support and acceptance. As many of you know, Debbie founded Tilt Parenting in 2016 as a podcast and online community which is aimed to helping parents raise differently wired kids and do so from a place of confidence, connection, and joy. She's passionate about the idea that being differently wired isn't a deficit, it's a difference, and hopes to change the way the difference is perceived and experienced in the world so these exceptional kids and the parents raising them can thrive in their schools, families, and in their lives. And she has truly done this. Her podcast, the Tilt Parenting Podcast, is a top podcast in Apple Podcast Kids and Family category with over 1 million downloads and regularly featured high-profile experts, educators, and insightful conversations between Debbie and her differently wired son, Asher. And she has a book, which many of you know about as well. And she was on our show in the past to talk about her book when it was first published last year called Differently Wired, Raising an Extraordinary Child in a Conventional World. Debbie, welcome back. Thank you, Dan. It's so good to be back with you. So we were talking at um, a wonderful conference that really specialized in differently wired kids. And through that conversation, this idea came up. And especially with um, your podcast world, your community, about this process, this, this stage of moving through these stages of when we get a diagnosis with our kids. And I, w- and I was thinking, how about we start with our, giving our stories about our own experience of getting that diagnosis and label as, as sort of a foundation to where we want to go and what we want to share with our communities today. Sounds like a plan. All right. You want to go first? I can. And even as you're asking that, I'm thinking there have been four different 
evaluations <laughs> over the years, but <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, I'm going to go with the, with number two. Uh, the first one was actually with an occupational therapist and it was kind of our dipping our toe in the water. So it wasn't an extensive assessment, but um, when my son was five, we got on a waiting list, I think about six months long to have him assessed at a place called the care clinic in Seattle, Washington. And I think they spent a few days with him and ran a whole battery of evaluations and assessments as, and we filled out a ton of forms and his uh, teachers did. And we got a couple of provisional diagnoses at that time. One was pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. And the other was ADHD. And at this point, we also had had his, him tested for an IQ test for schools and found out that he was in the, you know, profoundly gifted range. So those were kind of the, the things that we were, the labels that we were kind of considering. And I will just say, even that ADHD label was the one I really had this negative knee jerk reaction to. I, I don't know why. I think I had this idea in my mind that ADHD, you know, was, undesirable that, you know, it was those, the kids who just are disconnected and hyper and running around. And, um, I was like, that is not my child. I don't know. I was like some serious denial there. And so I struggled with that one. And, and I think yeah. I very much, as these were provisional diagnoses, I also was like, well, he's going to outgrow this stuff. So I think that was kind of my initial mindset upon learning this stuff. Yes. And those labels, right? Like what those label talk about, like what these labels actually mean and then what they end up meaning to us and, and why they mean what they mean to us, but it really becomes personal um, or can become personal. Um, okay. So my story was with our oldest and I'm thinking it was just about, it was first grade and it was, gosh, I can't remember if it's late kindergarten or early first grade. It was right in that five-ish, also five-and-a-half-ish area. And the first idea that we had that there was something up was the, this is kind of funny um, in hindsight, uh, the preschool teacher um, that does the pre-K. She was so seasoned. And in the exit interview um, after that year, she said to us, you know, she really isn't picking up her letters um, and her numbers and there's some processing stuff. And I really think you need to get her a full evaluation for learning and processing issues. And I remember hearing that and walking out and my wife says, wow, we probably have to, we should do that. Like, I didn't really realize, you know, that she was struggling this much. And, 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 you know, and of course the child's psychologist who does testing says, um, Ah, she'll be fine. Teacher's totally overreacting, right? The teacher's been doing it for 40 years. And I say, like, you know, total in denial. Like, no, 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 she'll be fine. It's just developmental. Like, let's just chill out. So sure enough, in kindergarten, the same thing happens. And so um, I reach out to a close friend who's a psychologist who I've known a long time. And so like optimal situation, like have a good friend test your young child. And so several testing sessions. And then optimal situation um, my friend says, Hey, would you like me just to come over and give feedback to your house? Like after the kids are asleep, we both had uh, young kids at the time. Sure. That'd be great. Right. Optimal circumstances. So she, she's, we're at the kitchen table and she hands out the reports as I would 
in her situation. And then she starts to take us through. And I just remember, it's foggy, but I remember hearing uh, all these low scores. And I remember hearing um, dyslexia, auditory processing disorder, um, executive functioning deficits, and something about ADHD, but I think I just kind of like glossed over at that time. Like, I don't know if she said probably, maybe. Um, and here I am having done this to other families um, for years at that point, doing giving the same kinds of information. And I just was so overwhelmed with sadness and grief and like filling up with tears. It, it, it changed me both from like a, a place of hearing what I delivered for so many years and the way that I delivered it. And also just the empathy of like what it's like to hear this stuff about our kids. Wow. And, yeah, and I, you know, it was the ADHD too that really hit me when I, when I think back for some reason as well. It's so interesting. Like just even hearing the way you talk about it, like your voice changes and I can just like, it's clear what kind of stuck with you. And the moment I had, I'll just share was at another assessment a couple of years later where we had gotten a, um, ASD diagnosis and I think some sort of oppositional defiance disorder, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. but one of the, the thing that sticks out in my mind where I had kind of that really emotional, like I shut down, um, moment was when she made a comment kind of just in passing, like, you know, if he is to live independently and I don't even know what she said after that. Cause that uh, just those words to me were just um, not something I had ever thought about before, you know, and right, right. Um, it was sad and, and also motivating. I think afterwards I was like, well, that's not going to be like, like I'm going to get on. <laughs> I just, just like totally <laughs> bring it on. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. it is, um, it is a, it's a, it confronts you, right. No matter like even coming from your situation, no matter how kind of seasoned you are and aware of these things, when it's your child, it can really hit you so hard. Yeah. Um, so this might be a tough question, but it, was it, I don't know if this is the right way of saying it, but was it fair? Was it reasonable for that professional to make a statement like that to you about Asher at that age? Given what, given what his presentation was at the time? That's a really good question. I mean, he was in third grade. And for me, it felt like she was trying to scare me. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it did feel that way. And that's how I heard it. You know, like, you better get on this and you need to start executive functioning coaching and you need to do this and you need to do that. So, um, I don't, I don't think it was, I think it, we probably could have done without that. And I could have still been just as motivated or aware of the kind of support my child would need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I bring it up because also for all of our listeners, um, both of our communities of listeners, we have of course, amazing parents. And we also have amazing parents who are, are all in the allied professional are in the professions, right? Just a professional that happens to then have these kids. And, 
And for those of us out there who are also professionals, I feel we have an obligation to to keep like with awareness and training with others of of the power of our words in these positions of knowledge and authority and that you know we make diagnoses and we make projections and that how and and, and many of us make them in a way that we were trained right it's not like we're just making it up but it's like until we're in that situation um of being a parent and it's like you just the it's just i guess what i'm trying to say is words really matter, right? Our narratives really matter. They create identities and destroy identities and they create hope and they destroy hope. And I think part of what our show is, what Debbie, what you and I want to talk about is instilling hope and helping people understand what the stages are so they can own this process themselves um, and um, have, have some just some knowing about what to expect as they step through this and come out on the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think words are so powerful and we as parents are so vulnerable in when we're in that room, when we're in that situation and a lot of parents, yeah, it could change the narrative and what they make this mean about their child in a way that could take them years to really process and Mm -hmm. and kind of get on the track that will actually serve their family in the best way so what are you here what do you typically hear from your growing community um, when they find you and um, they realize oh there's this place there's this differently wired there's neurodiversity there's other ways of looking at it like what is what's the path that you see Well, often people find me right when they learn that their child is neurodivergent in some way. So they tend to come to me in that mode of, you know, fix it mode. They tend to come to me like, okay, I've got this information and what do I do? I'll do whatever it takes. I will, you know, I'll sign up for whatever therapies and I want to kind of get things back on track. And, um, you know, we were talking before the show and I'll walk you through kind of the journey, the evolution that I see, but, um, but ultimately what I hope tilt provides for people and what I try to get people to get to is to, is to, instead of being that kind of that warrior parent that, you know, fix it mode, uh, mama or papa, or whatever it is, and just kind of moving ahead without paying attention to who your child is, um, to instead start to shift your thinking. And that pro- to get, getting there takes a while. But initially, when they come to me, they're looking for resources, for tools, advice, therapies. They're starting ABA. Oftentimes, they're just on this path because they really desperately want to, you know, ensure that the worst case, I'm using air quotes, the worst case scenario for their child's outcome um, doesn't come to fruition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking about, I'm just reflecting again on myself as professional and myself as parent. And I'm thinking, you mentioned before, like, I got to get on executive functioning and blah, blah, blah. It's like, so there's still those, those supports, those interventions 
they still seem important, like improving executive functioning skills, improving social skills, improving social process, excuse me, um, sensory processing. Like there are all of the, or ABA for to help with behavior and uh, regulation. But I think, so, but I, I think what you're saying is th- those are, those are things but it's also how do we look, how do we approach this whole thing and how do we see this whole thing, right? As we are using some of the tools to help our kids? Yes, 100%. So I'm not saying that, and and I, I talk about this a lot as well in my book, that this is not about saying that getting support for our kid, kids isn't important, but it's the intention behind the choices that we're making. And so in that initial stage, when we're in fix it mode, often the intention is to get my child to better fit in to, uh, to make sure that my child's quote unquote behavior um, isn't uh, making them stand out it, to ensure that my child, um, yeah, just looks more quote unquote normal. And um, so we're, if the intention is to, to try to fit our square peg kid in the round hole. And that is the motivating factor behind the choices we're making, the therapy we're pushing for, as opposed to respecting their experience and understanding who they are inherently as human. That's where the disconnect happens. So I think, yeah, we did OT for years um, to give Asher some emotional regulation skills and, um, executive functioning coaching we've done on and off has been incredibly helpful. And those are tools that we use so that he can understand who he is and have what he needs to be his best self. But we're doing it to support his journey as opposed to trying to make his life look the way we wanted it to look. Right. Okay. And of course that just happened day one, right? You just intuitively yeah. knew how to do that. And it was just like, yeah. Pretty much. Yep. yeah. So <laughs> the stages, right? This takes us to the stages of what we both, I believe have gone through ourselves and what so many of our community members do. So, so let's start with the, w- this first stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first stage is that fix it mode. And it, it is that stage where, you know, we discover that we're a member of this club, right? Of parents all over the world are in this same club with us. And, but it's a whole strange new world. And so oftentimes in fix it mode, we're diving into the research, we're joining groups, we're asking questions, we're signing up for therapies, we're getting on wait list service, uh, wait lists for services, we're going down the IP road, like we are we become often these uh, kind of just super advocates, warrior parents who are going to move mountains to get our child the support that they need. And again, um, we, we might be using a lot of behavioral and star charts at this point, because for a lot of these kids, it's their behavior in the classroom. That is the biggest problem. At least that's the message we're getting. And so we're really focused on modifying their behavior and rewards and punishments and um, trying to get them to comply. So we're in this, we're trying to mold 
this child. Um, and we get this uh, information that we need to do this while they're young and their brains are more uh, malleable and it's yes. easier to make these changes. Yes. So Neuroplasticity, strike yes. now. Yes. Exactly. So it is a pretty intense phase. And we often burn out, frankly, in this phase because we might be running around over scheduling our kids and financially taking a big hit to get the support that we think they need. Yes. Deep breath there. I just had a like flashbacks, right? So like (laughs) breath, everyone like running around and getting into all of the, either the best centers and clinics you can find or the ones that your health insurance will take. So you can figure out a way to do all this. Um, and running after school and kids saying often, I don't want to do this. Why do I have to do this? And then your kids are coming home and still being themselves because they are their wonderful selves. And then we're asking ourselves like, is this stuff even working? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this can last for a while, right? Fix it stage can last it, for a while. It can, depending on how stubborn we are or what kind of a control freak we may be. And yeah. It, it leads into or can kind of coexist with phase two, which is this growing sense of frustration that the fixing isn't actually working. And so, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier about often parents can get burned out during this time. Often we might see ramped up resistance. Uh, we might see our kids' dysregulation become more evident. Um, the school challenges might continue. This is These are the years when a lot of uh, parents of atypical kids are moving around from school to school in search of that fit where their kid can be themselves. The conflict, you know, about behavior and homework and all of these things can, can continue. And so as a parent, we're like, wait a minute, I'm doing all of this stuff. My kid's doing talk therapy and, um, you know, maybe ABA or uh, OT, whatever. And I'm not seeing any change. If anything, things mm-hmm. feel like they're getting worse. And so right. that is a, that's a hard place. That's a dark, that's a dark place to be. Yeah. And then there, and there's decisions there too. Like at some point it's like, do we keep doing this? Do we, you know, like I think a lot of us want to stop and take a break, but there's fear if we don't do what we are told by the professionals to do, our kids are not going to progress and grow in a healthy way. That's exactly right. And we don't know always who to trust or to believe. Mm -hmm. And we get mixed signals from schools and from pediatricians and from therapists. And so there is this, that's actually phase three is that we can't can sink into this despair and worry because, you know, what Mm -hmm. I hear from so many parents is, and what I felt for a long time was this is always going to be hard. Like this is my life now. This there, there, everything I'm doing, it's not working. This is always Mm -hmm. going to be difficult. We're always going to uh, be stuck. Our family is mm-hmm. never going to have choice. Like we just tend to awfulize, especially when we play this out. What does this look like into the future? We can become really paralyzed with fear and overwhelm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that of course that f- it's it's all f- it's future based, right? We we're stuck. Like right now, it's hard, 
the routines are hard, the transitions are hard, the behavior is hard, maybe the learning is hard, the processing is hard, and then we project out to that place that that professional projected out for you when Asher was young, which is, you know what, he might not ever be able to be on his own. He might be with you forever. He might ne- he might never have friends. He might not be able to like we just go to that mm-hmm. place which to everyone listening it's like gosh, we have to try so hard to bring ourselves back to the right now, but it's so hard to do so when we're in this stage. Especially again, you know, I think for kids and I'd be curious to hear if this is your experience, but me personally and what I hear from my community is those years between, you know, K through maybe third, fourth grade tend to be the trickiest because there's often such a disconnect between their, you know, their developmental um, age and their emotional maturity and, and, you know, maybe these interventions and they're feeling unsettling and they're, they're not, their needs aren't being met in school. And um, so it can just feel very chaotic and, and difficult at home, especially we might see really intense behaviors. And so when you're in that all the time, you just, you just can't even imagine that it's not going to always be that way. And so when you're thinking, Oh my God, like here is a kid who may never leave the nest and this is my life. You know, it's really overwhelming. Right. Yeah. Right. And so totally agree. And then let's add um, your f- uh, adult friends or peers that have neurotypical kids and you're seeing everything go kind of swimmingly, you know, like all the milestones <laughs> being hit, yeah. quiet family dinners out, like all of these things that I know that we were like, why don't we get any of this? Like, what is, what is wrong? Like, what is wrong with us parents? Right. So I think let's also like the, the, like the mirror also turns back on us where I think we feel that we have way more to do with what's going on than maybe we do at times with our child's development and where they're, where they are. Yes, for sure. And especially again, when you get those diagnoses, like the oppositional defiance disorder, which, you know, when that one came up for us and I did research and, you know, what I kept reading was this is really not a clinical diagnosis, but rather a response to a parenting style. Um, I know much more about it now, but at the time I was like, Oh my God, we did this. Like, um, and so that, yeah, there's that fear, that feeling of failure of, um, judgment that we perceive we're receiving from our friends or from just other, you know, adults, uh, parents in our community and that sense of jealousy for sure. Um, if we're seeing other kids or other families just living in a way that we would like to be living, being able to just go to, you know, uh, go to a Mythbusters live show and just have it go really well, you know, um, which was not the case for my family. Um, So, yeah, I think there can be, I call it comparing and despairing, but I think that that is also a big part of this, this phase is that sense of despair and failure. Okay. So now we're in the dark. Like this is, this is for everyone who has been there, who feels like you might be there. Um, This is, 
this is the hardest place because you've gone from you're fixing it. So when you're fixing it, you're like, you're on it, right? You're doing everything that you're supposed to do to help fix your child. So your child's going to be just fine. And then there's this frustration that sets in as it's not going as planned or as quick enough and we're not getting results we want. And then we go into this dark place of despair and worry and fear that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. But now we start to pivot, right? Now there's some change on the horizon. Yes. So sometimes there's like a catalyzing event or something that can spark this shift, but it might be something we read. It might be a podcast we listen to. It might be a conversation with someone. Um, it might be just reaching our, our point where we realize this is not working and we need to make a change for our whole family's well-being. But we come to a point where something clicks and we realize we need to try something new. Like our child deserves something different. Our family deserves something different. This isn't working as Mm -hmm. is. And we need to start leaning in. So this can happen quickly. And this can happen. I mean, I've heard from adults and grandparents who are just realizing now, like, oh my gosh, I didn't give my child what they needed. And I, you know, so it can, when it happens really depends on how much work we want to do on ourselves and how willing we are to lean into the hard stuff. But this reframe, this shifting is really when things can change for our families. Mm hmm. And so how does that, so how do you then this process, this process, so we, we have it like this aha slowly, maybe it's out of like complete utter frustration or Mm -hmm. it does come with a, Hmm, I've been looking at the, I need to look at this differently. So it just happens. Is it, is it conscious? Is it, you know, like what's the step? What does it turn into? Well, it is a conscious decision and it might be just putting our hands up in the air and saying, I give up. Like I, I'm just gonna, I can't do this anymore. And you know, when we reach that moment, I guess it would be rock bottom in certain contexts, but when we reach that moment, then we have a decision to make and, um, what we want to do and what I see, what I did and what I, what most families that I work with go through is, um, is kind of a recalibration, right. Mm -hmm. Of everything. And it starts with questioning everything. It starts with questioning our ideas about what success means. It starts with questioning our ideas about what an education should look like, what Mm -hmm. a family Mm -hmm. life should look like what I believe in my heart about neurodivergence, what are my own subconscious biases that I might have about things like ADHD and other Mm -hmm. differences. And have I been trying to fit this kid into a system that wasn't designed for him? And if so, how, how can I kind of make the changes to start to accept Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who he or she is? So this, so this, this step before the recalibration, which I know you've referred to is uh, reframing, is sort of like, I see it as almost like now there's all of a sudden there's like a little space, like mm-hmm. we're getting off the train, even if it's a, it's a terrible train, like we're on, we're on this like 
nightmare train ride at this point. Like it's not going, it's not a nice dream. And we are like, no, I don't have to be on this train. It's, it's like this pause, which then gives room to do the recalibration, which is what do I really think? What does my experience really taught me? And who are the people, professionals, the ideas that I really am starting to lean more towards um, that feel fit my child and my family? Yes. And I will just say it can be uncomfortable. And, you know, the, my favorite quote, I have it everywhere. I've got cards for it. I, I have it all over my Instagram is that life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And mm-hmm. this phase is about getting comfortable being uncomfortable. So it's really like a rebirth in some ways, because you really do have to get rid of all the assumptions you had about what life was going to look like for you, who you would be as a parent, who your child is, and and start to then get curious about who your child is. And as you said, you know, connect with, read books that resonate with you. There's so many uh, people out there, you and I, and so many people mm-hmm. that we connect with in our communities who... Yeah this is how we see neurodivergence and we are trying to empower parents to, to embrace who their child is and recognize that they don't need to be fixed actually, um, that they need to be seen and respected for who they are. And so it feels scary because it feels for some reason, trying to move into a system or keep going through a system that our kids don't fit into and that isn't working feels safer than throwing all of that out the window and and starting over but it's so freeing because suddenly there are no rules and that means anything's possible that means that we can create you know a situation that might really serve our kids educational style or we can just change the way our family operates or the expectations we have and that mm-hmm. is a freeing thing to do and it and it can create just like you said a little room it can create yeah. a sense of yeah. lightness yes so freeing i mean for those of us who have experienced it it's like it's like oh my gosh i don't have to do this it's it, it's uh, and i can do it this way and then I can feel good about doing this way because of course there is that trepidation and you're taking, it's a lot of courage and and at sometimes a leap of faith. And so we're recalibrating and then you were talking about what we're moving into next after that. Yeah. So, and this is, I think when we were first talking about this episode, I mentioned that this is what I often hear from parents is there tends to be a, a phase where there is some guilt and some self-shaming that happens on the part of parents. So as I said earlier, moving through this and going from fix-it mode to this shift, to this reframe can take a few months or it could take years. And when it takes a longer time, often parents feel guilty for choices they've made. They feel that they, you know, maybe put their child in situations that might have created more trauma for them. Uh, they feel bad that they didn't recognize earlier what their child needed. And so there can be a lot of just beating up. So on top of having felt like a failure as a parent for so long, now we're upset with ourselves for not having realized sooner 
what our child really needed and for maybe making choices that didn't serve them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And advice to parents to get themselves through the guilt and shame and to have some self-compassion and, you know, how to let this go, knowing that every, we're all, everyone's doing their best. Like it's all coming from a place of good intention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think self-compassion is really everything. There's really no time in our lives for guilt and shame. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a, it's a waste of an, of a, of an emotion. Shame especially can be really harmful. And so what I encourage parents to do is to kind of identify what those thoughts or beliefs are that are kind of that voice running in their head that is, that is kind of feeding the shame spiral, whether it's like, um, you, you know, I should have known better. I should have made a better decision. I can't believe I did this. I failed my child, you know, write down what those beliefs or thoughts are. And then, you know, try to find evidence, this is, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, but come up with some proof for how those right. beliefs might not be true. Well, actually, as you said, I was doing the best I could. I made the decisions I mm-hmm. thought were right mm-hmm. at the time. And now I know differently and I'm, it, and I'm going to do differently. Right. We're all growing. We're, we're all growing humans. And you, what you triggered for me with, you said shoulds, and then you said cognitive behavioral therapy. I have to say this sort of stick in people's heads. Um, Albert Ellis was the founder of our rationally motive behavioral therapy, which was one of the early um, pre-cognitive behavioral therapies, but behavioral therapies. And, um, and his, so he was the, he started talking about cognitions and he, he tackled shoulds. And he said, when you're, when you're shooting, you're shooting all over yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So we can't, right. So we can't do that to ourselves. The shoulds and the musts usually, um, do not do anything helpful for us. And I, a little side note, I just have to say that when I was in my twenties and I was going through a little breakup, I went to the Albert Ellis Institute for therapy here in Manhattan. Awesome! And so I couldn't afford to work with, uh, you know, one of their seasoned practitioners, but I worked with one of their, um, you know, interns. Um, awesome. It's pretty I, direct, right? Was it pretty direct work? Oh, it was amazing. And there was yeah. a t-shirt hanging behind the receptionist that said, I will not shit on myself. And oh, I just thought that hysterical. was hilarious. <laughs> oh, see? We, were, we were meant to talk about that today. <laughs> That's funny. But what I will say too, to add to your point is there is something really wonderful about talking this process through. Like talk about this with your kids. Say, you know what? I've been really thinking about some choices we've made and I realize I, I would have done things differently, but this is, you know, what I've learned about myself and these are the choices I want to make moving forward. And so Mm -hmm. we can model our own growth here and show that we all make mistakes or that we can all continue to work on ourselves. So if we don't kind of um, beat ourselves up about it and and hide yes. from it and instead yes. just open it up it can be a great opportunity and healing right really healing which which leads to then what like what we're trying to get to which is the stage of understanding and supporting and accepting our kids yeah exactly and it's and I will just say a word about this last phase, which is, you know, acceptance, but um, 
I think a lot of people have this idea, as I did for a number of years, that acceptance was this kind of happily ever after and nothing really yeah. phases me anymore. And I'm just meditating and Zen all the time. And I don't believe that that's what acceptance is. I think acceptance is doing the work every day. It's recognizing your own, you know, humanness within this journey and mm-hmm. being self-compassionate with yourself and setting an intention every day to show up as best as you can for your child. It's not, Yeah. it doesn't mean we're yeah. not going to have bad days. It means that we recognize, huh, I'm having a bad day. I'll, I'm going right. to try to do better tomorrow. Right. And, and it's like acceptance for ourselves and acceptance for our child who's also going to continue to have some struggles and some bad days. And like, that's like, we're not going to be surprised by it and then rush in to fix it. It's like, ah, like, yeah, you know, it can be tough every once in a while. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. That is. Uh, And this is hard or yeah. Wow. This, this is going to be a hard situation. Isn't, isn't that interesting? You know, like just kind of putting on that noticing hat, that curiosity and noticing and not judging, just kind of being with what is. I like that, that mindfulness way of like, isn't this interesting, which we're all, um, I think trying to do with what's going on in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. these days is sort of like, huh, this is interesting and noticing and trying to stay present and then not go either to the past of what we could have done differently or to the future of what might happen. Like just really trying to say, accept really what is, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. So we just, you guys all just went on the path. You just went on the, the path of um, getting this label um, thinking we need to fix things, and then moving towards this long path of acceptance. And once you get there, I guess Debbie's saying, it's important to know like this isn't the the pinnacle of like, oh, like it's like <laughs> we, we still have, we're still the same people with the same kids. It's just how we are living our lives and viewing them in a way that really appreciates them for who they are and seeks daily to understand who they are, particularly as they're going through all of the developmental milestones and preteen and teen, like it just keeps evolving. And it actually is amazing knowing that we have these older ones now, Debbie, that when you look back in the earlier years and see the changes that have gone on in the past decade, it's, it's miraculous. And it's like having just this hope and faith that development keeps happening. Yeah, it really is incredible to me. You know, I have a 15 year old now, as you know, and um, it's, it's incredible to me to see the growth in him and, and the challenges are different. uh, But I just Mm -hmm. so respect and appreciate and adore who he is as a person. And it's just been a fascinating journey. I love it. Awesome. Okay, it is time for the question that you are now a veteran of because you have answered the Parent Footprint Moment question before. So to remind the audience, the question is, tell us of a time when you became aware of yourself as a person or as a parent and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. Yeah, so... The answer I came up with for this, because I wanted to do something different than last time, I was thinking about 
anger as uh, just an emotion that I realized, I don't know if there was one moment or I've just kind of spent some time in the past maybe year really thinking about this. I kind of realized that a lot of my reaction to moments of intensity in my child were the result of my own uncomfortableness with that emotion. And I had to really think about, and I know this is so much of the work that you do, like thinking about how we were parented. And when I think about anger, I used to have a terrible temper. And when I would express it when I was a kid, it was scary because I would trigger my dad's anger and he was not okay with me being angry. And then he would get angry and him, my dad angry was scary to me like run back and close the door and hope he didn't come in scary. (laughs) And so I just, I never really kind of connected those two things. And I was okay empathizing with, with my son, like really any other (laughs) emotion, but anger, I just wanted it to stop. And I just finally realized, oh my gosh, anger is okay. Like anger is a healthy Mm -hmm. emotion to feel. And and in many circumstances that he was expressing it, it was completely appropriate to express Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that I was doing him a grave disservice by trying to shut it down. And Mm -hmm. so I really had to do some work on myself and realize, okay, this is my issue, my uncomfortableness with anger and try to reconcile that. And And I'm doing just so much better. Like I can be with him and his anger. I still kind of get the, it triggers me for sure. But Mm -hmm. if I need to, I just kind of, I'll, I'll be a vessel for receiving it for a little bit. And then I'll be like, I'm going to just leave the room right now. I'll just like separate myself, but not in a mean way. Um, I understand you're angry, maybe vent for a little bit, and then I'll come back and check on you. So it helped me be able to be with him in that in a much healthier way. Nice. Nice. And, and I love, I mean, so consistent with parent footprint, like being aware of your own um, upbringing and the impact of your dad's anger on your, you know, development and um, knowing that you needed to, to reconcile that so you can move forward in the way that you want to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, nice. it's been good. Nice. The learning nice. continues. It does. It does. Okay, Debbie, thank you for another wonderful show and for being a voice to all of us um, tilt parents out there trying to uh, parent our differently wired kids uh, and all kids to the best of our possible ability. Um, let tell everyone tell them about your show tell them where that your book where can they continue to find all of the work which you are putting out regularly well first of all thank you so much for having me back on the show i love chatting with you about this stuff and this was a really it was a really good conversation just for me to even think about um what what we've all been through and what our community is going through so thank you yes and for people who want to connect with me my Website is tiltparenting.com. And I actually just released episode 201 of the podcast yesterday. And a little update to your intro. I'm going to hit 2 million downloads in like a week, which is crazy pants. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we need to update that people. Yeah, that was 1 million. (laughs) 
That was on your website, by the way. Yeah, so I was, I so you need to ch- you need to change that one into a two. Yeah. That is amazing, it's, Debbie. It's, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's super exciting. So all of those podcasts are there and you can uh, kind of search by also by theme, learning disabilities, giftedness, uh, twice exceptionality, ADHD, homeschooling, whatever. Um, I also, you can read a sample chapter of my book, Differently Wired, which just came out on paperback. And that kind of goes really deeply into some of the concepts we talked about today. And then I just want to say, I created recently a new section called Tilt Education. And there is a little area for educators, for some resources, for teachers who want to be a part oh, nice. of shifting this, but I also have compiled a list of, I believe it's the most comprehensive list in existence of schools that are friendly to differently wired kids. There's almost 200 schools there and that many of them have testimonials from parents with firsthand experience in those schools and it's broken down oh, by state great. and country. So, um, that's also, it's all at tiltparenting.com. There's a lot there to dive into. Awesome. Well, congratulations on, um, your continued success. And uh, it's just a tribute to, um, how much people are needing and loving the information that you're putting out there and, uh, being a beacon for us all and a voice for us all. Yeah, thank you. So, Thanks, Debbie. I know we will talk soon. And um, good luck staying present in our interesting times these days. (laughs) You too. (laughs) Yeah. All right, everyone. That concludes another show. Thank you for listening to Beyond Diagnosis, moving from a fixed mindset to support and acceptance with our friend, Debbie Reber. Remember, do your best to be the person you want your child to become focus on your own health, your own engagement, and your own awareness and growth in your own life. Our kids are always watching. You're teaching all the time. Check us out at www.parentfootprint.com. And as always, ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave?